Legally Blonde, Suits, My Cousin Vinny. All badass lawyers, all different. Which begs the question, what type of lawyer do you want to be? Don't waste another second thinking, ugh, I don't even know what types of lawyers there are. Trust us, we've been there. Let's put a stop to that once and for all. Go take the 90-second quiz from new lawyer now what coach Angela Vorpal to give yourself a clear picture of the best fit type law for you. Go to www.whattypeoflawyerquiz.com and take the quiz today. Once you've taken the quiz, send us a DM on Instagram to let us know what type of lawyer you got. We can't wait to hear. Hey guys, and welcome back to Ladies Who Law School podcast. I'm Haley. And I'm Sam. And this week we have a very special guest, you guys. She is TikTok famous, former big law lawyer, CCJ. We are so excited for you to hear our chat with her. So why don't we dive in, Samantha? You ready? Let's go. Hi, guys. Well, we would love to welcome our guest, Cece. She is on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and pretty much all over. If you do a little Google search, you'll see that she pops up in a lot of different places related to the law. So, hey, Cece, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Thanks, Samantha and Haley. It's so nice to be here and thank you so much for having me. Um, I've listened to a bunch of your episodes like before this and was just like so floored at how transparent you guys get and real. And it's something I wish I had when I was in law school, which was years ago. I always find it funny when people ask me about law school advice because I went to law school like way, way, way before at this point. Um, So I went to Harvard Law and then practiced um, in big law in New York City, first as a securities and intellectual property lawyer, and then as a privacy lawyer. And during the pandemic, I, like so many other people, started making TikTok videos out of boredom, essentially. And to my surprise, my account kind of took off a little and threw out this like crazy what, two and a half years, three years, uh, I have been just making some content mostly about demystifying the legal world, what being a lawyer actually was like on a day-to-day basis and kind of the realities of that. Uh, But in March, I recently left the law firm to pursue writing a book. I don't know if I'll, like, I I might return to practicing law in the future, but as of right now, uh, I really just had some passion issues I wanted to work out through writing this book. And I think this will be announced next week publicly, which might be coincide with this like podcast release. But um, I actually got a book deal and I'm working with uh, a publisher on that whole process. I know it's very, very exciting. Um, So now I am you know, trying to kind of find my creative legs and also work on this book and really try to figure out what there is in a legal career besides just making partner because that's the only path I really knew of back when I graduated. Oh my gosh. I, we are so happy to have you on here. We have 
heard about you. We are not really big on TikTok, but when we went to TikTok and started watching your videos, we fell in love and we knew we had to talk to you. So thank you so much for joining us. And I mean, there's so much to unpack there. You went to law school at one of the best law schools in the country. I mean, I know the listeners and Samantha and I want to know what was your experience like and how did you end up choosing that school? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think uh, wherever, I think a lot of HLS students, right, their journey to overachieving starts way, way earlier. And I think that's uh, actually my case too. Uh, I immigrated to the U.S. when I was four and I, me and my parents are from China and I think they really, really stressed education like very early on as like something we needed to do, something like I had to do. So from a very early age, I was aware that like, I don't know, my parents in high school wanted me to like quit extracurriculars so I could study for the, for the SAT. And I was like, are you serious? Like they wanted me to quit dance. They wanted me to quit everything. They were like, this will distract you from taking the SAT. Um, But I think this did kind of instill in me this, uh, I always like to joke, I've never met a ladder I didn't love to climb. Because if you just like place something in front of me, I think my instinct is always like, okay, now I have to figure it out. I have to like figure out how to get to the top, figure out how to um, get that score. And it serves you pretty well throughout life up until you get to the part where you actually have to live your life. So (laughs) getting to uh, law school itself and getting to Harvard actually was, it was really challenging because I found the LSAT challenging and the LSAT actually was like one of the worst exams I've ever had to study for. And I've studied for a lot of exams and tend to like standardized tests, but the LSAT like nearly broke me. Um, But the other aspects of law school applications, right? I think a lot of it is pretty formulaic. And I did either unfortunately or fortunately, I took classes purposely in college to maintain my GPA, which meant that sometimes I didn't take classes I enjoyed necessarily, but I knew that I would get an A in and do all of that. So I was very like strategic throughout it all. Um, Harvard Law is kind of exactly what you envision it is. I hate saying that because I think HLS gets a bad rap from movies like Legally Blonde, where everyone seems like really competitive. And while there are a lot of people who are wonderful there who want to make a difference, the class size is just so big that it does tend to be dominated by an echo chamber of everyone talking about the same things. And, you know, I think a class of 200, you would feel a little maybe less inundated by all these opinions about what you should be doing. But in a class of 500, like any one thing, everyone else just hops on board with. So in your law school journey, your three years there, what would you say were some of your struggles, if you had any, and some of your biggest accomplishments? And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, academic wise, it can be really anything. (laughs) I do think that my biggest struggles were actually academically, though. Going to law school, I mean, I had spent so many years, right, trying to maintain good grades, and I had done really well in terms of, like, admissions to law school Mm -hmm. that I really went in 
almost kind of arrogant, I think, in how well I would do. Uh, There's that myth, right, that the LSAT determines how well you do in law school. And let me tell you, I disprove that myth so much because I did really well on the LSAT. But when I got my 1L fall grades, I was like, oh, my God, I should withdraw. I am going to be a terrible lawyer. Uh, Legal writing, my legal writing professor just hated my writing like no matter what I did I would meet with him and he would just be like "Mm -mm, I don't I don't know why don't you what about this and I was actually convinced that I had really picked the wrong path and this was kind of compounded by the fact that my law school roommate did awesome in law school like I know you're not supposed to share grades and everything but when you live with each other you kind of like it's hard to avoid that right so absolutely I remember when all fall grades came out and we were like both in the room and we're like, all right, we're going to share at the same time. And I heard his and I was like, oh my God, I am going to like, I want to disappear (laughs) because he got like A pluses essentially. um, And only like a couple people get A pluses in classes. So Mm. that was just like really, really hard to deal with. And I think it kind of shook my confidence in, should I even be a lawyer? Will I be a good lawyer? Um, And that was kind of the hardest thing to get past, especially as you continue 1L, right? You still have a lot of doctrinal classes and I still didn't do awesome in those. Uh, So 1L kind of like broke me and broke my self-esteem. And I really went into my 1L summer internship thinking, oh my gosh, like, I don't even know how I got this internship. They are going to eat me alive. Like I can't write a good memo to save my life. So that, that was kind of the, the down Um, but you mentioned like, what are the greatest accomplishments? I think my greatest accomplishment is kind of moving past that, right? The luckily during 2L and 3L, I started dating my fiance now, and he very much went into law school with like this attitude of, I want to go in and learn what I can from law school rather than learn necessarily what law school is there to teach me. So he really encouraged me to start taking classes that actually interested in me. I think, you know, when I signed up without his guidance, it would be like corporations, tax, like everything that you think is like kind of normal law school, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But after, after we met, he was like, well, why don't you take feminist legal theory. And I did. And it was just like one of my favorite classes ever. I felt like it expanded my thinking. It made me like a more critical person. I really actually connected with the professors for the first time. One L I'd spent so much time in office hours trying to talk to them and befriend them. And it just did not work. And it wasn't until I kind of took these like kookier classes, like uh, law and modernist art. That was one of my favorite classes. And I ended up writing like an independent paper under that professor. And these were the first professors in law school that I actually felt like I connected with. And I think really like coming to that love of learning and love of thinking about all the things that law really encourages you to think about, that was the best part of it, was kind of retaking what law school had taken from me during that first year. Oh, I love that. That's such a good way to think about it. I I was going to ask, what would you say to people who get their first year grades, first semester grades? I mean, we shared to an extent and it was, we were not in the best place. And you know, uh, for, for us, it was 
some of our first times getting C's and it was just rocking our world. Right. So, you know, I don't want you to feel like you have to share, but how did you get past that? And I know that you met someone who really helped change your perspective and maybe perspective is what it's all about. What do you think? Yeah, a lot of it is perspective. And also as you take classes that you feel passionate about, that you are really genuinely interested in, I did find that I did better in the classes that I actually liked rather than making myself read about tax for four hours and um, trying to understand, you know, all the various ways in which uh, tax law works. So part of it is just uh, becoming comfortable with, your decisions and embracing your decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think the more you actually embrace who you are and the things that interest you, the better you are likely to do. And another part of it is when you have distance from the law school experience, you realize how insular it really is. And the fact that you're legal writing professor is one person in the world. And writing is actually so subjective when it comes to what is good writing, what is bad writing. Right. And I remember when I started writing memos in the law firm, people, partners, mid-level associates, they would actually tell me, great writing, you write fast, you write quickly. And I was like, are are you serious? Like, John wouldn't say that. And like, in the back of my head, I was always just thinking like, man, John, he just, he hates my (laughs) writing. It must be terrible. But uh, I think- We all have that person. Right? Right. Like that, that one name. And it's like, it's, they, they have a name too. Um, yeah, you'll never forget him. <laughs> yeah, so John was just like always in the back of my head being like, you're a terrible writer, like, I don't understand this, and like basically giving me, I don't know, like a passing grade. Um, but it, it is, it, it's like, he, I realize that he comes from a perspective, right? And he mm-hmm. is someone who, uh, the people who teach legal writing at Harvard, they're called Clamenco Fellows, and they're all people who want to be academics. And I don't know if you guys remember reading like law review articles, but oh my God, they, if that is the type of writing he really wants to encourage, like that is not the type of writing that I think like a client wants to see. It's not the type of writing that like a judge necessarily wants to see. So I think coming to that realization that there's like different audiences and you might not write correctly for the audience. And in law school, it's really one person, like two people who are reading, but you can write accurately and correctly and like with the right tone and everything for everyone else in the world. And ultimately that's what matters. Right. So I think changing that, like changing my audience and realizing I had a different audience was really gratifying. So true because yeah, you, I think about how subjective writing is now as, as a, a baby lawyer out there in the real world. It's just like people do what they do and that's how it works, you know? Um, but how did you get your first summer internship and where was it? Yeah, so um, it was at the Department of Justice and the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property section. I was, I mean, I think I was always kind of a gunner, right? So I was one of those people that like was preparing their cover letters over Thanksgiving break to send on December 1st, which I think is the first day that one else can actually apply to summer internships. And I had been 
like scouring the DOJ website for various departments and um, like sections that I was potentially interested in. I had gone into law school knowing that I wanted to do something with like tech and law. Um, so I kind of looked through into, I think like computer crime and intellectual property was a pretty good fit. So I did the normal, like tailor a cover letter, send my college transcript, send it in cold to that one email list on the website, along with, I think like, you know, 12 other emails to different departments in DOJ. And then I just waited. Yeah. How long so, did that take? Yeah. Yeah. So the overall process, I think I didn't hear back from them until like end of January. And it was funny because during January, uh, the one else we have to do this like workshop essentially. And I remember one girl in my workshop mentioned she had an interview with this section that I had applied for, but she turned them down. And then about like a couple days later, they reached out to me. So I kind of knew I was the second choice from the school um, going in, but Hey, you know what? Uh, it's <laughs> whatever works out, works out. Right. Uh, but yeah, yes, end yes. of January. So it was about like two months later that they reached out to interview me and had the interview. And then basically things were set by like mid-February, which was really nice. But I know that's like not a typical timeline at all. And I had friends uh, looking for 1L internships, like basically right before the summer. So did you continue on this internship your second summer or did you have a different internship then? No, I did the normal like on-campus interviewing for big law and then did the 2L summer big law associate internship. Uh, Mostly... I mean, there was, I, I did know that I had to do something to pay off my loan. So there was that, but also even people who were in public interest, there was this pressure at the school to do on-campus interviews for big law. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think like career services probably has a hand in it and they're always like, yeah, just try it out. Just try it out. And, and this is part of that. Team. That's what we yes. heard. Yeah. Yes. It's really a part of that. So of course they have their hands in it. I mean- yeah. Gotta call them out, you know, but continue. Sorry. I know, I know, which is why, like, I'm a little gratified that a lot of them are pulling out of the rankings, supposedly, mm-hmm. but we'll see how that works out. But yeah, no, it's yeah. a lot of like, I, I mean, the firms also pay career services to host receptions and participate yeah. in on campus interviewing. So mm-hmm. I do think there is a financial interest as well for the school to provide as many candidates as possible, right? So this is something that I think career services doesn't tell the students, but obviously it's underlying a lot of what is going on. Uh, But yeah, there was just such a huge push for everyone to do, um, it was called EIP. And I was like, you know, I did want to go into the private sector and this I heard was something that everyone was doing and I wanted me to be a part of this thing that everyone was doing. So yeah, I, I signed up like everyone else. Okay. So after that summer in big law, you know, what were your thoughts? Obviously it's a very different type of internship, I'm sure than the internship at the DOJ, right? Yeah. I think it was, it was different in ways that honestly was hard to explain because so much of it was cultural. And it's funny because DOJ is full of former big law lawyers, right? Like everyone I worked with, all of the staff attorney, it's like they've done years and years of experience. They usually start out in big law, all of that. And yet the 
vibe was very different as between the government agency and the big law firm. I think the hardest thing about the big law firm was you do some legal work, but most of the work I did that summer was just trying to figure out how to be among uh, really wealthy people who knew of things and had experiences that I had only vaguely heard about before, but that I couldn't really engage with. So a lot of it was figuring out how to like move within this like new space. And it's kind of embodied in the fact that summer lunches are such a big thing in big law. Mm -hmm. Um, So for a summer associate, a lot of the times you arrive at the firm and then they tell you go to lunch with people. And I was like, okay, go to lunch. Sure. But no, these lunches are like, they are fancy lunches. Like they are, they're not just like, oh, let's go to Chipotle, you know? I mean, some of them are, but the lunches they're really talking about are like, let's go to Michelin star restaurant and like do the prefix menu. It's usually, it's, that's funny because the menu is always capped to whatever the prevailing budget among the big law firms are. So you kind of like get thrown into this like random space where all of a sudden I was like, man, I'm really glad I read, oops, the like the got girl's guide to manners that from American girl back in seventh grade. <laughs> right. Yeah. I wouldn't know the first, I mean, it's like, uh, maybe I, I should have paid more attention at cotillion. Like I wouldn't know the first thing of what to do either, you know? Right. Yeah. And it's like so confusing. Cause, uh, I think one time I sat down and then they took away my napkin and they gave me a black one. And I was like, what, what, what happened? And an associate next to me was like, it's because you're wearing black. So they're not going to give, they took away your white napkin so that the white lint doesn't get on you. And I was like, what is this? Like, what is this whole new world? Like what is even happening? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's I want to like, know more about big law. Kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, like this is crazy. I feel like my eyes are open. Yeah. Well, um I mean, I, luckily this is kind of the topic I delve into in my book, right? Cuz I did find it so weird. Like you're entering yeah. a world and it is so weird and so bizarre, but a couple years in and everyone it just feels like second nature. It feels like breathing and I think this is what why sometimes big law has that reputation of being golden handcuffs and you like kind of forget what or where you came from, like what you came in for. And, you know, so many people sometimes are like, oh, I actually wanted to work in public interest or work like in something else, but now golden handcuffs and 10 years later, here I am. Yeah. So why don't we talk about just, I, I know that you went into big law after you graduated. Mm-hmm. And you're clearly not in big law right this second. So kind of what happened during that time that made you change the way you see it or like what what made you change your mind in like maybe potentially leaving the law? In your experience. Yeah. What was your experience in big law? Yeah. So I'd say it's funny because um, so I was at two firms and my two firms were a little night and day despite both being big law firms. And that experience of seeing just how different big law firms could be kind of motivated my sense of, oh, I feel like then there is something that we could change. At my first big law firm, right, you kind of just assume, and career services tells you this too, is that, oh, all firms are kind of the same. So, And I really do remember the career guidance counselor telling me, well, why don't you go to this firm because don't you want that shiny name? And I had 
told her, oh, I actually want to do like technology law. And a lot of other firms were higher rank or more well-regarded for technology law. But she was like, "Mm, you can always go to them later. Why don't you go to this one? It'll help you get a shiny name. And I was very impressionable. So I was like, okay. Um, I, I do think I'm one of those people that if I saw everyone else jumping off a bridge, I probably would follow them too, because I would be like, oh my God, they're onto something. Like maybe something is going on. Like I, like I need to know. So, uh, and I thought like career services, they must have my best interests at heart, right? Like why would she be telling me this if it wasn't the best thing for me? So Mm -hmm. I ended up, um, I mean, this was when I was trying to decide my 2L summer internship, but that kind of leads to where you work after law law school. Mm -hmm. So I did, you know, work at this firm and I thought it would just be like everything else. And there was this distinct sense that I was a little fungible. Um, there was the sense that uh, when I did voice what I wanted to do, I ended up getting staffed on a huge securities class action, just like a huge moneymaker for the firm. And I did it for a cute couple months, but then I was like, you know what? I came here to do intellectual property stuff. Like I didn't actually want to be a class action litigator. And when I raised this to the staffing partner, they pretty much told me unless I was spending, you know, 90% of my time on this thing that I didn't want to do, I couldn't complain. And I was like, well, I'm spending like 60% of my time on this thing I don't want to do. And he was like, nah, that's not like that. That's life. And I was like, how am I okay with spending 60% of my time on something I don't want to do to then potentially do 50 to 60% of something that I do want to do um, because you always work more than 100% of your hours, right? And that just didn't seem like a good way of caring about my interests or like my career development. And there were also just instances where I did have a friend who was starting a fund and I was like, okay, maybe I'll be a little proactive and try to pitch this to our funds department. Of course, I think his fund was like 25 million. So like relatively small for, I think, a firm like that. But I thought they would at least like, you know, be excited that I was trying to do something. Unfortunately, the partner that I sent the email to just left me undelivered. So it was just like small things like this that kind of made me realize that my advancement at the firm was a little limited. And if they weren't being appreciative and trying to encourage my taking initiative now, it probably wasn't going to bode well for me like seven years from now. So really the day I had that conversation with a staffing partner where he was like, well, unless you're doing 90%, you can't leave the case. That's the first day that I honestly, I just picked up my phone and I called one of the numerous recruiter emails that I had gotten in my inbox. And I was like, Hey, I I would like to look at other options. Um, So this brings me to my second firm and it was weirdly like a 180. I think I just came in thinking that it would be exactly like my first firm and I would be fungible and I would just go in and do my like two to three years and then peace out in-house and do tech law like I always dreamed of. But uh, I actually like loved the group and the partners in charge were just so, so different. Like I remember like two months in, one of them sat me down and was like, I just want to talk about like, are you getting the right mix of work that you want? Like, are you doing like, what, what should we do for your development? And they would actively encourage me to um, like 
be nominated for awards, to do panels, be on webinars, do client facing things. And this was a level of support that I just hadn't experienced before. And having that really disparate experience was eye-opening to me in many ways. Um, And kind of made me a little sad about what I had experienced at my first firm because so much of it I see now as kind of unnecessary. Like it's unnecessary to treat people that way. It's unnecessary to have these policies and structures that they did have. And as I started thinking more about like, oh, what could we change about this environment? Because I really did love the group I was in. I loved, um, you know, the work I did. And even though, yes, big law is very demanding, they made like the demanding manageable. And I think there is a level of like, you know, necessary terribleness and then unnecessary terribleness. And I think that Delta is really important in management and everything like that. So I started thinking a lot more about like, oh, what could we be changed? Like what could be different about this whole system? And that's kind of what prompted me to start thinking about collecting experiences and really writing something from a nonfiction angle about just like this weird system. Because like, I mean, we've all read stories that are about law firms, right? Like we consume media about law firms, but a lot of them do just say like, this is fiction, this is fiction. And I kind of want to push these firms to really look at something that says explicitly, this is nonfiction. And Mm -hmm. these are true stories. And if these are true stories, what are you going to do about it? I love that. Oh my that. gosh, and yeah. That makes me so excited <laughs> to read your book. Like, I really I hope that when it's out, like, let us know. We want to push it and, you know, have everyone get we it. We want to like, meet you on your I book tour. Yeah, yeah, like, absolutely. Because that is, first off, just love that you're a female getting out there and, you know, foraging your own path as an attorney. I mean, it doesn't have to be one size fits all. I love how you said at the very beginning of this, what else do I do other than being partner? And I can't tell you how many times we have had that conversation. Like, what does this look like? That is part of the reason we started this podcast and we talked to so many female attorneys out there and and what they do with their life. So, you know, you are you know, I feel like you have a very long career ahead of you. And this is, you know, just one of the many milestones, but to get to write a book, that's such a, an exciting endeavor. So, you know, tell us how you decided to leave big law and, you know, what was that transition like and how does it feel to, you know, maybe not be practicing and billing hours now? Yeah. So, I mean, I think your point about like seeing female attorneys, like, be lawyers of their own. That's really what I felt like at my old group is seeing these like awesome, really compassionate, kind uh, women attorneys like become partner, but on their own terms. Like they were the first group that whenever I talked about like, oh, you know, I might want to have family one day. They were like, yes, pick any time when it is right for you. Whereas attorneys at my old firm, they actually did say, uh, maybe you should wait until you're a ninth year, like plan your <laughs> families and pregnancy <laughs> around your career. And I was like, and I, because that was the first thing I had 
known about, right? It was the first thing I heard. I really kind of believed that. I was like, okay, this is how you have to be. And it wasn't until I really saw like these other women attorneys kind of carving out their own path that I was like, man, maybe there's a different way of doing this. And I think they, because they had done things their own way in some respect, when I started posting videos on TikTok and started getting some traction and ended up having to tell them that I was getting some following on social media, because I think it's always a scary thing for a law firm associate to have to come out about like any kind of public presence to a firm. Uh, (laughs) It's kind of a big (laughs) no-no historically. So I think coming out to them about that was a pretty scary experience, but they were so supportive. And I think they kind of saw that they didn't understand what I was doing entirely because they also weren't on TikTok, which who can blame them? It's, uh, it is a very, very bizarre app, but because they had done things their own way, I think they were a little bit encouraging of me doing things my own way. And they were like, you know what? It's like kind of good. She's not doing anything bad. And, uh, won't we see where it goes? Like maybe this is helpful in some way. So they really encouraged me to continue. And uh, one of the partners that I'm really close with, she even once emailed, and I'll never forget this, that she was really proud of me for what I was doing on the platform. And I was just like, whoa, there, like, my parents haven't even said that to me about TikTok. So this is, this is quite surprising. And um, I think getting that encouragement meant that I felt comfortable leaning into just creating more and kind of tapping into this like creative side of me that I hadn't really unleashed since law school. In law school, I was a part of like the law school parody. It's kind of this like musical where you sing and dance and do silly things. Um, Yeah, kind of like making fun of law. So like I think one year we had like law or law wars attack of the loans right um Mm -hmm. kind of like a playoff of star wars and (laughs) we would just like do these silly things that i really enjoyed and it i really thought once i became a lawyer i had to crush that side of me like i was going to be 100 percent serious now all the time the fun and dancing and like making fun of things that was law school cc and that like she is dead she is like just in the past now so it was fun to be able to just make things and through making things really shed light on questions that I had as a law student, just like even like, mm-hmm. what is 2000 billable hours actually like? Does it mean you can have dinner with friends? Like these things that Absolutely. I actually thought were hard to answer because when I did ask attorneys about it, they'd just be like, you have no time for anything. Like, what are you <laughs> thinking about? It's terrible. And I was like, okay, okay. But it wasn't until I lived through it that I was like, you know what? Yes, it's difficult, but or there were ways to manage it. Like yes. also, yes, it doesn't mean that you don't have to go to dinner ever with your friends. It just means that sometimes like you'll have to cancel and like, that's a thing. But then there's also strategies to try and minimize canceling plans as well. So just all of these things that I was like, I just want to share it with the world and hopefully it'll help someone out there um, who is just as confused as I was probably like a first gen lawyer. Like you don't have a lot of people to ask to about these things. And the people whom you do ask about these things, they tend to be a little like terse and unhelpful. Um, but, and throughout this whole process of creating things online, you know, you tend to meet other creators, right? Like I think 
in the podcasting space, you just meet other podcasters and back and forth. And one of the creators I met, she was a law firm partner and also creating content on TikTok. And I was just like, oh my God, like you are exactly what I thought I should aim for. Like, let's talk about all of that. And her her read of being a law firm partner was actually more less impactful than I would have hoped. Right. I, I asked her, I was like, Oh, well, can you really spearhead and change DNI at your firm? And she was just like, like a little, but like not as much as I would want to. And it kind of made like the brass ring at the end of this whole thing a little less shiny because I think Mm -hmm. I always had in my head, like, Oh, once you get to the top, you can change everything, right? Like once you become partner, you can change the whole industry. And I didn't realize Mm -hmm. that the partners, yeah, are still so beholden to the other partners that it ends up being like this system of inertia at the end of the day. Um, But through talking to her, she was like, oh, you know, you have a lot of ideas about things you want to write. Like, why don't I introduce you to my literary agent? So I met with him. Um, He liked my ideas and he was like, great, now you have to write a proposal. And I was like, great, I will do so. And then for the next six months, I was like, I haven't had any time to write anything. I am so sorry. So it got to a point where it felt like I needed to kind of like shake things up and make a big change to really devote time to figure out if this book thing has any legs, right? Like maybe it'll be a stupid idea and no one will want to publish it. Or maybe there is something there and I need to give myself the time and space and ability to just sit down and write, which was really, really hard to do when I was still working full time. Yeah. I can only imagine. So now you are, I guess you quit your job. Is that what you did to shake it up? Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I decided that, well, first, I, I did a lot of things in interim. I applied to a PhD in law, um, I think because I was scared of quitting my job and saying, oh, yeah. I'm quitting my job to like do, like write a book, Be an maybe. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> a writer, a content creator. Like, right, right. Like it all sounds. Yeah. Yeah, but it all sounds like when you're in an environment that's like so prestige hungry for so long, yeah. it almost feels like scary to say like, oh, I'm quitting this to do this unknown thing. So in my panic, I decided to like apply to a PhD in law program. So I was hoping that I could at least be like, hey, I'm leaving, but I'm going to do this PhD, right? Like in the same way that people are like, hey, I'm leaving, I'm going to do a clerkship. Like it just feels a little bit better to say to others, Mm -hmm. even though it, it, it doesn't really matter at all. Um, And when I did get, so I got rejected before I actually quit. And I was just like, oh my God, like how, like, do I, do I leave now? Do I stay? And that's when I kind of had to get comfortable with this fact that I was going to be telling people, hey, I'm quitting, not for anything else. I'm quitting to try my own thing and pitch a book. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how I'm doing it. Yeah. Or maybe I'll be back in a year. You know, like I really (laughs) was like, maybe I will be back in a year. Like I do not know. No one knows. Please uh, keep my seat warm for me. Uh, Don't give away my office. I might be (laughs) back. Uh, And yeah, that, that was the decision though. But I really did feel like I had 
I mean, at the, at the very least, I had my agent who believed in me and he was just waiting for me to do something. And I felt like in life generally, I always need people to believe in me before I do something. And I've realized that weirdly in your career, uh, it tends to be a series of either you believing in yourself too so much or other people believing in you so much. Like there just needs to be a series of like belief and excitement about something. And for me, uh, I think like having this kind of like external person who worked in the industry, was like, no, I would like you to write this proposal. It was the push I needed to give myself the opportunity to do something that was a little scary. And even now I'm like, God, I don't know if I can do this, but at every stage, right? Like someone has believed in me a little bit more and I'm like, okay, well, I can't let them down. So I I have to give this a try, even though it's honestly like one of the scariest things I've ever done, especially coming from law, which I think is really, really historically risk averse, right? Like I think a lot of us went into law because we like to mitigate legal risk. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I know we have some questions from listeners for you, and yeah, I want to make sure on. we get to those. I mean, I could sit here and talk to you forever. I love listening to your story, and I, I, we believe in you, and I know after this conversation, there's going to be even more ladies who law school fans out there that believe in you. So we, we look forward to your career because Aww. we're looking – up to you. I mean, we stand on your shoulders as we continue on. So let's see what the listeners have to ask. All right. First one. I know you're no longer practicing law, but what was your favorite part of big law? Mm. Yeah. I think my favorite part of big law was working on really interesting work with really smart people. It's a group of people that is really, really, really smart in so many ways. And if you end up working with the right people, you learn so much from how they manage their clients, how they manage um, other partners, how they manage their more junior associates. And just like observing that is such a joy, especially if you love efficiency, right? And like you love things that make sense. Um, And I do think like the work was so interesting and cutting edge in some way because the nice thing about big law is that well because of how expensive the rates are usually if they are coming to the law firm for a question it's something that can't be easily done or easily answered in their in-house department so I do feel like I got to really see a lot of interesting um like use cases for products or things about like emerging issues in law, right? I think especially as a privacy lawyer, uh, everything is new all the time and being able to see what different companies are doing across industries in response to really new laws was like very exciting and helped me feel like I was at the forefront of something and kind of gaining an understanding into something that was still really nascent. I love that. All right, next one. Building your legal career and being a creator simultaneously is hard. How do you stay on top? Man, that's a good one. I wish I had a better answer. (laughs) I think in general, right, uh, your legal career always comes first. Uh, 
when you do have like people paying you and clients relying on you and your creator career is still kind of like starting out. I think what kind of helped me in the beginning was both having an idea of how much I was aiming for in terms of production, but also cutting myself some slack if I couldn't hit it for any reason or other, right? Like content creation should be fun. And the moment it stops being fun, you should probably stop doing it because it like that the whole point of creativity is like to express something, to connect with people, to do something that like brings you joy in the moment that's no longer the case, then uh, it's probably not worth it. So setting up some sort of like mild content schedule, but knowing that you can move it around, I think is really helpful. And I did aim for, I think like two to three videos a week. Uh, but sometimes I would be like, it'd be a week and I'd be like, well, here's one video. All right, let, let's go. And when you're working with that, I think what is nice and TikTok, the algorithm kind of dissuades against that, or I guess the, it's not the algorithm, but all these accounts about how often you should post, post on TikTok tend to say like multiple times a day. But if you do have more limited video uploads, you can make each of them really high quality and really high value in a way that I do think resonates with the audience. At the end of the day, like I still am a believer in quality over quantity and you can use the constraints that you're given to increase the quality rather than just stress about like, oh my God, the quantity isn't there. That's really good advice, even for us, you know. Yeah, yeah well, you guys are doing great. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Um, okay, so a lot of questions were, you know, why you left Big Law. So <laughs> we, got, we got answered. that one answered. Yeah. Um, we all wanted so to the, know. <laughs> <laughs> the last question that has nothing to do with leaving Big Law, because there was like 10. <laughs> How <laughs> did you study for law school exams? Ooh, it's oh. about that time. Yeah. Okay. Let me like rewind back to like eight years in the past. <laughs> um, so with the caveat that I never really did that well on my law school exam. So I don't know, take this with a grain of salt, but I do think that the best thing to do is to kind of iteratively study, right? Which is to first go through all your notes from the class and makes your own outline from your class notes, and then incorporate a an outline for that professor for that class um, from prior years, if possible, and like look through those and start incorporating those into it, and then like if you don't if that's not available right then like any outline that's pretty good on that subject works too but like go through that and like compare it to your own outline and just like add more to your own outline so at the end you kind of have this like gigantic outline for yourself and then like go through that and make sh- successively shorter outlines right and it's not so much like making shorter outlines it's the process of going through the material as you're making shorter things and then when you get to the very end you have this like I don't know, one to two page, I call them attack outlines, but you Mm -hmm. should be able to look at each like word on your attack outline and have it kind of like feel like a file system where in your head it expands out to all these other points that aren't necessarily in the outline, but that you know, or at least can reference in your longer outline. And it's more of like a process driven learning rather than like anything in particular, because I do think at the end of the day, so much of law school learning is the process um, rather than just like 
any particular goal. And I mean, yeah. we all learned civil procedure back in 1L, right? Like the law is just all about the process. Mm-hmm. That's such good advice because, yeah, it's such good advice just for law school in general, <laughs> that file system, right? The idea of looking at something and like trigger something. We, we joke about that all the time about how there's little versions of ourselves inside our brain, like searching through the files, looking for the law, because that's what it feels like sometimes. Um, there's so much to learn and only so much space, but yeah, yeah. I so actually, doing like- that good scrunching, that's what I always like to call it, you know, taking outlines and making it smaller, smaller, smaller is, is that was such a good way to explain it. And you guys should definitely do it. Alrighty. Well, Cece, can you tell everybody where they can find you and where they can buy your book when it's out and all of the things? Cause I'm sure everyone's going to want to obsess over, you now. Oh my gosh, you guys are too kind. Uh, But yeah, so obviously I am on TikTok, which will always hold a dear place in my heart um, for being the first platform that made me think, oh, wow, maybe I can do something creative. So I'm Cece Shia, C-E-C-E-X-I-E, everywhere on TikTok, um, also on YouTube and Instagram. And I also recently just started a podcast called Currently Workshopping that's available on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the spiel. And uh, lastly, my book will be available at, I guess, all major book sellers, but this probably won't be until like spring 2025 because of how long the publishing process is. But if you want updates in the meantime, you can go to my website, which is just uh, ccshia.com and sign up for my newsletter where I will keep y'all apprised of how the process is going and just, you know, give weekly things about like whatever I'm thinking about or tips. Um, This past week, I think I wrote about uh, three strategies I use to try and get closer to people at work so that I can, you know, later figure out things like the politics of the firm and get people to open up a little bit more. So just all things I've been thinking about and gleaned over the few years. Amazing. I also feel like we're just going to have to say it now. Like we're probably going to have to have you on again because I feel like there's just so much stuff that we need to like unpack and talk about. Um, So we'll just let the listeners know now that we're going to try to get you on again. Yeah, no, I would be overjoyed. I think it's like lovely to have these touch points and be like, where are you now? Where are you now? I always like look up after reality shows and stuff. I'm like, where are they now? Right. We're going to definitely, we're going to need a, where are they now? Because people are going to be asking. I know it already. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, DC. Yes. Thank you so much, DC. And 2025 will be here before we know it. So we will have to definitely have a few touch points between now and your future book. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. And I am so also excited to see where you guys are in 2025 by then. I can't wait to compare notes. (laughs) can't wait all right bye wow guys okay so Cece's now my bestie well I want her to be my bestie she doesn't know that yet but I do want her to be my bestie but she hears it now (laughs) yeah she hears it now she's like my bestie too you have to be our bestie (laughs) bestie. also um she lives in New York so like now we have a next friend we have so many friends in New York at this point like we're going to have to have a dinner. Should we have a meetup? 
Okay, we we'll need talk to about it later. School dinner. Let us know. Hang if you're out in New York, if you're in New York, cool DM warriors. us. And that'd be really fun. We could set up like a little meetup dinner, fancy dinner, ladies who law. So if you live in New York, hit us up and we'll see when we can make something happen. Oh, that sounds so fun already. Right. And yep. also, guys, she's writing a book. So I know 2025 seems like a while away, but before you know it, think about it. It'll if you're a 1L here. right now, it's out before you even graduate. So, right? Yeah. Yeah. You good. No, definitely. I mean, it'll be like right as you're getting ready to start your career. So it'll be perfect time to read it. I know I'm going to be waiting for that to come out. Also, I just love her outlook on life and being a working woman. And I can't wait to see what else she does in her career. And the fact that she could pivot, it just shows you once again, Mm -hmm. like so many of the women we've had on this podcast with your law degree, you can do so much. Literally, you can write a book, you can leave the law and do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And speaking of leaving the law, you know, sometimes you just pivot in the law and end up, you know, starting a firm that does communications and law, like some of our guests have done in the past. Or some people, you know, move on to be CEOs of companies. But trust me, guys. Just like so many of us before, you never lose your legal knowledge. So make sure and remember that and pivot anytime that you need to. Yep. And guys, I guess just a little update. We're going to be posting every two weeks right now because we're busy setting our little booties off for the bar. Um, And I know that you guys understand and you're sending us all the good luck. Thank you ahead of time. Um, So we will keep you posted. We're still going to be on Instagram. So if you really need us, reach out. But if we're a little MIA for the next three months, it's because of that. And as you guys who have taken the bar or about to take the bar, you know, um, it kind of consumes your life for a a minute. And we both are working and studying. So sometimes things just have to slow down a little. Yep. That is absolutely true. And we appreciate you guys understanding and supporting us through all of this because, You know, of course, this was not part of the plan, but just like any good lady lawyer, we're pivoting. So with that, make sure and follow us on Instagram in case you need to reach out. You know what? Come on over to LinkedIn. Follow us on LinkedIn. And you know what? Speaking of TikTok, if you're interested in our TikTok, make sure and follow us whenever you uh, are checking out Cece's page too. And don't forget to listen to our hundred plus other episodes while, you know, we take a little break here and there um, because there's a lot of stuff in there, guys. So just sift through, absolutely, sift through all of them. See what's speaking to you that day if you haven't listened to it before. Yep. All right, guys. We'll stay safe, stay healthy, have happy holidays. I know we'll talk before then, but we love you. Bye, guys. Bye.